Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, which begins in our church Bibles on page 871 and in your bulletin. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the New Testament. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Please be seated. Many countries around the world set aside the month of November to focus on adoption and orphans, and we're going to take a moment this morning before we come to this text to spend some time in prayer to that end, so please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that in 1 John you tell us that uh, you have lavished your love upon us in such a way that you have made us children of God. And that is what we are. So we praise you, we rejoice that even though while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that even though we are ungrateful and undeserving, you have opened up your arms of love and invited us into a relationship with you. Even though we are often disobedient and selfish, Father, you cover us with grace and call us your children. We have nothing to offer you. Uh, but you call us to yourself. You give us an identity, you give us purpose, and you call us and empower us to make a difference for your kingdom here in this world. So Lord God, we pray for those that care for vulnerable children. Uh, we thank you for the privilege that we have to serve you and to be your hands and your feet in this world to that end. And, but we pray specifically for those homes, uh, for their lives, for their hearts, uh, that give their lives and their hearts to the vulnerable children. Those that 
foster care, those that have adopted, those that are social workers or teachers or therapists and other professionals, Lord God, we pray for them, ask your blessing to be poured out upon them. Lord God, would you strengthen and encourage and uphold each one of them. And as a church, Lord, would you use us to support those families who foster or adopt and help us to be in a place that is welcoming and accepting Help us to be a support to these families and those in this church and those that are known to us. Show us how we can be a part of that story as we stand with them. So Lord, equip us to be a part of your story in their lives. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity and responsibility that you have given us to love the orphans, to love the widows and given us tangible ways to do that. Lord, now as we come to your word this morning, we await for you to speak to us. We're confident that you will speak because uh, we're looking at your word and your spirit works mightily through it. So Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the way that you view something directly affects the way that you respond or the way that you live. When I was, I remember when I was about eight years old, I I remember turning on the TV and it seemed like all I could hear about when I was eight years old was this epidemic of the HIV and AIDS virus. I don't know if some of you can remember back to about that time frame when it seemed like what I heard on the news and what I heard on the TV and the radio was that everybody was going to get it and everybody was going to die. At least that's what my eight-year-old ears heard. And I had no idea how you got it. I, know, I had no idea how you could not get it. And if you got it, how to get rid of it. I remember being scared to swim in a pool at my grandparents' house. I remember uh, going on a vacation with my parents to Boston one time. And I remember walking through a clothing store and touching every article of clothing that my mom touched. Because if she got AIDS and died, I wanted the same thing to happen to me. And it's, don't don't cry, it's okay. (laughs) But I didn't know the truth about that. But what I did know and what I thought I knew caused me to live and respond in a certain way. Because we as human beings live and respond in ways that we know. So the way that we view something directly affects the way that we live. And the same is true of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when we come to this text today... Uh, We're going to see what the Bible has to say about the second coming of Christ. Now, some people in some churches are so focused on the second coming of Christ, they look at every political issue as a setup and as a map that's mapping it out, knocking over all the dominoes for us so we can pinpoint and know exactly or roundabout when Christ will return. And then there's other individuals and churches that put it off and don't think of it really as a reality at all, and it has no bearing on their daily lives. But I think there's a more happy and a more biblical place in the middle. And today's text, among others, reminds us that Jesus Christ can and will come at any moment like a thief in the night, so we must be ready. Now, maybe you've heard that old derogatory phrase that says, he's so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good. Well, this is just untrue because I've never met anyone that was very heavenly minded that was of no earthly good. 
So the opposite is actually true. If we're going to be of any earthly good, we must be heavenly-minded. C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. Now, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were preoccupied with heaven. He goes on to say, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So as we come to this text today, we're going to see this over and over, that the way that we view the second coming of Christ directly affects the way that we live today. The way that we view the second coming of Christ will directly affect the way that we live today. In 1 John 3, it says that hoping for that day transforms us. Colossians 3 says that when we see Christ, we will appear. That means we will finally know fully who we are as individuals, as human beings in Christ. The more that I yearn for that day as an individual, the more that I'm impacted in its reality, in its daily life. There's more joy, there's more humility, there's more patience, there's more forgiveness, there's more action for the kingdom of God because I'm longing for that day. So let's get right into the text today, and there's a lot here, but we're going to look at most of it underneath two points, and there's two key metaphors, and then there's two key motivations. So let's look at the first, the two key metaphors. And remember, a metaphor is a figure of speech that refers to one thing to describe another. So there's two key metaphors in this text that give us a a picture that help us grasp the reality of what Jesus is saying. So look down at the text at verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. The first metaphor is this, dressed and ready for service. So we have the description of a wedding that has taken place. So the master is away. He's celebrating in this wedding, and they don't know exactly when the wedding will end and when the master will return. You see, a Hebrew wedding feast could last for several days, even up to a week or longer. Now, people would receive an initial invitation and say, hey, the wedding is going to be on in such and such time frame, and we would like you to come to this. And then when all of the preparations were made, when all of the food was ready, all the decorations were set out, everything was ready, then they would receive the second invitation, oftentimes in person, to bring them to that wedding feast. And they would feast, and they would celebrate, and they would rejoice until all of the supplies were gone, and then everybody would leave. So you, you had no idea when the party would end. All right, so these servants here have no idea when their master would return. It could be anyone's guess. They had a certainty that he would return, but they didn't know when. Now that did not keep these excellent servants from being ready to serve. Though it was late at night, 
they were ready. Now, you've seen the movies and the styles of clothes that they had. Now, basically, it was a long dress with holes cut in the sides for the, for the arms and then one in the top for the head. And for someone to be able to move quickly, they would have had to have their waists girded. Now, how quickly can you move in a long dress? I'm not really familiar with that, but I can assume that it's, you can't move very quickly if you were in a long dress. So they would gird it up. They had a belt, and they would cinch up all of the loose articles around, and they would tuck it into that belt. So they had kind of like these little baggy shorts um, so they could actually run and move faster. That's what would take place. That's what it means to gird up your loins, whether it be for service or for battle or for just being able to move quickly. That's what these servants are like. They have girded up their loins, and they are ready to serve. Now, the point that Jesus is making with his first metaphor is that of activity. He said, make sure that you are ready for kingdom action. Make sure that you are in a condition in which you want to be found, because I could return at any moment. He says, do you want this to be the last thing you said or the last thing that you did? That's what he's saying here. It's living this way. It's, it's saying, what if this action right now is the final scene of the movie of my life? What if this is the last act? How many of us live in reality of that? Now, there's so many practical implications here for us. So think through just a couple of those for me. We need to be ready first to move, to, to work and move for God's kingdom. Now, it's awesome to have checks and balances. Committees and teams are great. They can be absolutely wonderful things, but there are times when there is no time to send something through a committee. The time to act is now. Now, personally, that might be a time for you to share your faith, or it might be a time to send an encouraging word to somebody, or spend some encouraging time with somebody, or to take someone a meal or to give someone some money so that they can purchase a meal. We run across all of these throughout our lives, but often we make excuses and say, well, tomorrow or next week will probably be a better time for me. You know the pad answers that we give? I'll, I'll share with them later when they seem like they might be a little more interested. We do this because we want to dodge being ready right now. Now, maybe you've been in a battle for quite some time, and it feels like you've been put through the ringer of life, and you know, you stand there and you think, I, I don't know how much longer I can actually stand this. You're just overwhelmed. But then you remember the reality of the second coming of Christ, and you are strengthened and continue to fight. There's a hymn, an ancient hymn, for all the saints from whom their labors rest, and one of the texts says this in it. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Alleluia, alleluia. Now what it's saying is this, is that when you're in a battle, in that moment you don't know that you can go any longer, and you hear off in the distance reinforcements coming in. Somehow, you're able to gird up your loins and fight just a little bit longer until those reinforcements come in. But it says that you hear the triumph song. That's the picture that we have. We know that Christ wins the day. And it is in those moments that we are encouraged and strengthened. Just a few more moments. I don't know how much longer, but 
I, we got this. Christ has this already. The battle is his. We can keep going. What about this? What if you're taking a class, and it's a really important class for your major or for uh, your job, and it's something that you have to do, and the teacher says this. There's only going to be one test in this class. One test, and it's going to count for your entire grade, and I'm going to give you that test in three months. Now, what do most of us do? We kind of chill out for a couple months. Maybe some of you wait until the last week to prepare for that test, but you know, okay, it's, it's coming, so I'm just going to relax. And then when the time comes, then I'll start cramming for it. Now, what if the teacher said, there's going to be one test, and it will account for your entire grade, and I'm not going to tell you when I'm giving you that test. How do you come to class? Your loins are girded and you are ready for action. That's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. Any moment, Christ could come. So be dressed and ready for service. It gives us a patience that's not ours. It gives us a humility, a forgiveness for others. Why? Because we're able to see the bigger picture. We're actually able to cry out, Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to have this passion that they just sang about. You know, George Whitfield was one of the great uh, fathers of the Great Awakening. And his work in gospel ministry actually changed the course of history. Uh, the work through the Great Awakening and what the Lord did through him actually brought about the American Revolution. But this man preached outside because he wasn't allowed to preach inside of churches. His name was often maligned uh, in the press and among other believers. But you would see over and over written down in his journal this phrase. Oh well, in a few moments we will all be standing before the throne of God. You see, he had a focus on what was eternal and what people said about him now, whether it was true or false or complete blatant lies, it didn't bother him because he knew God's got this and in the light of eternity, it doesn't really matter. Oh, if we could do that. The second coming, that perspective really impacted him in a practical way. Tim Keller is a church planter and author and preacher in New York City. He's a great theologian, and he said in relation to the second coming of Christ, the teaching from the Bible is not how we will find that great day, but how that great day will find us. Powerful words. So, and finally, how should we be clothed? Philippians 3.9 says, that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that is in him by faith. And we sing the song often here, Cornerstone, and there's a phrase that says, Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. That is the gospel. It sees the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the death that he died on the cross for our sin that we do not deserve, and it sees that resurrection of Christ coming back to life and offering us life, even though we look and we see our own sin. We see the depths of our own heart, and we recognize that we have absolutely nothing to offer to him, so we come to God through Christ alone. We are in that moment when we come to God through Christ alone. We are draped with the righteousness of Christ or the perfection of Christ so that when God looks at you, he sees none other than Jesus Christ. That's how I want to be clothed. 
in Christ's perfection. So be clothed, ready for service. The second metaphor here is lamps burning. In all of the second coming parables, the master is away at night. Why do you think this image is used? Because for most people, unless you work the night shift, when the night starts to come, we get sleepy. It's been a long day, it's been a hard day at work, the night falls and we begin to let our guard down, we relax, and then we go to sleep. Now the reason that nighttime is used is because this is what is characteristic of the world, spiritual slumber. Maybe we grew up in the church and we have known for years about the realities of Christ's return. We've heard it a lot, but what do we think? He's not coming today. Is anybody there or is it just me? Right? It's... No, it's not going to be. It might be later, but it's, it's not happening today. Or maybe this is your first time at a church, and this is the first time you've ever heard about the second coming of Christ, and you do not know. Either way, either side, we have been asleep in regard to the second coming of Christ. We've been in a spiritual slumber. It is nighttime for us. What else happens in the nighttime? We see things in the dark, don't we? We get haunted by phantoms. Now, what's a phantom? It's something that is not a reality. It's something that's maybe created by our imagination. Or when we're sleeping and we're dreaming. Have you ever seen someone uh, talk in their sleep to somebody that wasn't there? Or raise up their fist and flail around like they're fighting somebody that's not there? Anybody do that? Spouses, you know? You know, I have one of my sons when he was younger would wake up in the middle of the night with night terrors. You guys ever seen one of these or experienced them? He would, it was like he was awake. He was sitting straight up in his bed and he was looking out and pointing at something in the room. Something was going on. Something was there. It was a reality for him. But we had to talk him through that because it was not a reality. That's what it means to be in the night. We let all of these things that are not realities become realities for us. All of these things that are temporary become immediate, like they're the eternal. But there is only one thing that is eternal. And that is who God is and his love for us and what he has done for us. So we live in light of all of these things that are temporary when God is saying, no, 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 live in light of the eternal. I will return one day. And it could be any moment. We're affected more oftentimes by what people say or what your boss says, right? Or what a person in school says. Does that impact you more or does it impact you more what Jesus says? Because he's in charge of your reality, not your boss, not that bully in the classroom, not the lies that you tell yourself. We need to wake up. We need to turn on the light and dispel that darkness to which we so easily believe. You see, the the reality is that Christ's return impacts us practically. And when it does, we're able to turn on that light and we're able to say, I refuse to be affected by this phantom. Lord, I want to be affected by the reality of who you are. You know, the only opinion that really matters has already been cast One author said, why do I need to worry about what the peasants say when the king of kings has already declared who I am? 
Here's some penetrating questions. Am I more comforted by the thoughts of Friday and Saturday nights than I am of Sunday worship? Am I more comforted of the thoughts of a vacation than the thoughts of that great day when he returns? You know, personally, I fear to answer that. William Barclay was a Scottish minister and author, and he was a professor at the University of Glasgow, and he tells a story of a fable of three apprentice demons who were coming to earth to finish their work. And they were talking to Satan. They said, we want to go down there and we want to ruin some men. And Satan said, well, what's your plan? And the first demon said, well, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to tell them that there is no God. And Satan said, well, that's not going to delude many because they know in their hearts that there is a God. And the second said, well, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to tell them that there's no hell. And Satan said, well, you'll deceive a few that way, but they know that there has to be some sort of punishment for their sin. And the third one said this, I'll go tell them that there's no hurry. And Satan said, go, for you have found success. So true. We put it on the back burner because there's no hurry, right? Am I dressed and ready? And frankly, I have to admit that while, yes, I am confident that I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ, my actions often do not say that I believe that Christ could return at any moment. Sure, I serve him. Hey, it's my job. I'm supposed to, right? But am I really serving him? Am I ready for service at any moment? Is there a sense of urgency about who I am and about what I do that he could come at any moment? Am I awake? Again, I must be honest. I spend a lot of my time spiritually asleep. When the reality of his second coming, though, comes to bear on me, when he is real to me, I am pierced by who I am, but also more so by the reality of the grace that he has given me in Christ. Wake up. Keep your lamps burning. Be dressed and ready for service. The reality of Christ's second return calls us to this. So let's look at two key motivations. Look down at verse 41 and 42. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household and give them portion or food at the proper time? So Jesus gives him an indirect answer here in a parable. And in the parable, he describes two motivations to be ready. Now let's look first at the negative and then we'll look secondly at the positive First, the negative motivation, verses 45 to 48. But if that servant says to him, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what he deserved, he got a beating, but he'll receive a light beating. And everyone to whom much was given, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Whoa. Jesus does not pull any punches here. And we have the picture of a manager that abuses the trust of his master and he abuses human life. 
He not only does not do what his master has asked, but uses what the master has given him, those gifts that the master has given him, he uses to fulfill his own desires and to act unjustly toward other human beings. Then we have a picture of one that knew what the master wanted, but he just didn't do it. Then there's one that was maybe out in the corner of the field, and he didn't even hear what the master required, so he didn't do it either. But in each case, they are all punished for not doing the master's will. But the punishment is more severe for those who knew what they were supposed to do than those who didn't. Again, all were punished, but to varying degrees. It's why we see at the end of verse 48, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see, we will be held responsible for this message of salvation in Christ alone that we have heard. We have so much. We have the message of God's salvation from the book of Genesis to Revelation. We have over 2,000 years of church history and testimony, abundant preaching, books, seminars, conferences, a wealth of opportunities. And if you come here to Stony Point Church on a regular basis, you will hear the gospel each week. Every Sunday, you will hear it. And as such, much is required of us. Friend, he can be your savior now, or he can be your judge in that day. A negative motivation is that reminder of what happens to the faithless servant. But there's also a positive motivation. Look down at verses 37 and then 43 to 44. Let's check out 43 to 44 first. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. And then look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table and he will come and serve them. Verse 38, we see that word blessed again. This is one of the most powerful messages in Scripture to me. Look at this. The servant who has been faithful in his temporary earthly responsibilities will at Christ's return be given vast permanent authority in the eternal state. Now what that fully means, we do not know. But we can be sure that of this one thing, it will be most joyful. Then look further. The message gets even better. God will serve us. The picture that it says that he will dress himself for service, that's the same thing that it was asking of us, to be dressed, to gird up our loins for service. God will serve us. We will sit down at the feast of the King of Kings and he will serve us. Eternity is no sterile or, or plastic existence. It's a marvelous feast of laughter and joy and celebration beyond measure and intimate fellowship for eternity. Revelation 9 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But see, this isn't just for the future. This is for now. 
He has come to give us life and life more abundantly that we experience it now. Again, how we view the second coming of Christ affects the way that we live right now. Romans 5 tells us that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Have have you ever experienced one of those times where you just truly sense God's love for you? I don't mean it in the, the hallmark, sentimental kind of way. I mean like a genuine, you just like this depth of, oh, he loves me this much. This is what he has given me. This is who I am in Christ. See, that is just an appetizer of the feast that we will experience. Today, when we are able to celebrate the communion table, it is an appetizer of that feast that helps us to look forward to that one day. The grace that we receive here is just a morsel of what we will receive at that table. We sing that song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. Is that a reality for us? You see, the grace that we receive when we partake of these elements point us forward, reminding us of that great day. And as Zephaniah tells us, that king of kings rejoices and sings over us. Us. So are you ready? Wake up. Keep your lamps burning and be dressed and ready for action. Because the way that we view the second coming of Christ directly affects the way that we live today. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to yearn for you. We want to burn with passion only for you. Lord, make us aware of those things that are phantoms in our life, those things that are temporary that we chase instead of that which is eternal. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here today that does not yet know you as Lord and Savior, that today, if it please you, today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would come and taste and see that you are good. But for those of us that are professing faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that today, in these moments, and in every moment for the rest of our lives, that you would give us the grace that we might live in the reality of your second coming, that at any moment you could return. May we be found with our lamps lit, and may we be dressed and ready for service, not for our glory, but for yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.